In the name of Jesus, amen. May be seated. Dear saints, for the sermon today, I'm going to preach on the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees God in the temple. Uh, Now, I don't know of a better way to preach this text, Isaiah chapter 6, than to simply go through it verse by verse uh, in in order. Uh, So that's what I'll do. So verse 1 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, that is the year 740 B.C., Uh, King Uzziah was the king of Judah for about 50 some years, and those were the most successful years that Judah ever saw. Uh, The nation prospered. They reclaimed more land. Uh, The walls of Jerusalem were reconstructed. Uh, Towers were added. They had a massive army, all of these things. Now, uh, and, and so now that King Uzziah died, the people of Judah were worried and afraid. And then Psalm 146 verse 3 says this, Put not your trust in princes, they are but mortal. And so then it's at that moment, the very year when everyone is fretting and despairing, wondering what's going to happen to their nation, that God reveals himself sitting on his throne to Isaiah in the temple to show him that earthly kings and rulers come and go. But the Lord is always on his throne. He's always ruling. Never is he not there. He always reigns. And it was not Uzziah that helped them. It was God. Okay. The the text continues saying, In that year I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The first thing you have to note here is that Isaiah is in the temple. He's not off in the wilderness or on a mountain or secluded in some place. He was at church. And that's when he sees what he sees. And the second thing is this. Isaiah says, I saw. That is with his own eyes. So whenever I've read this text, I've always imagined that something special is happening this day. As if God, you know, the temple is bare all the time. And then God just happened to visit the temple that specific moment. And they were just there at the same time. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is not that God makes himself present in the temple for that day. It's that God simply removes the veil from Isaiah's eyes so that he could see what is always true. Okay? That God is always in his sanctuary, always in his church, as he is in all places. But he's especially in his church. He is omnipresent. He's not uh, far off, locked away somewhere in heaven. He is in this place. And for that reason, it is a holy place because he himself is here. And he allows Isaiah to see it with his eyes. When we come to church, all our eyes see is yellow walls (laughs) and flickering lights and wood and carpet and tile. That's all we see. But the truth is, is that there's something deeper going on that we can't see. Something profound that is invisible to the eye. Something spiritual and divine. And we hear about it and we believe it, but we don't see it. And yet it's going on right now, this very moment. This very thing that what Isaiah saw is what is happening invisibly even now. And yet we can't see or feel that the Lord is present. And yet, but for a moment, 
God allowed Isaiah to see it so that we would know what happens in church, what it means that God is there. Okay, verse 2 then continues saying, Above him, above the Lord, stood the seraphim, that is, angels. Uh, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. Uh, Again, Isaiah here doesn't tell us how many angels there are, but we do know that there are legions upon legions of angels. And so I think that they're all there. We don't have any reason to conclude that some are missing or only a few showed up. It's that, uh, remember in the liturgy, we say, with all the company of heaven, all the, the, the angels and the archangels and all the company of the host of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, with all of them. That is what Isaiah is seeing. So if you can imagine it, Isaiah sees God on his throne, the the tail of his robe, the trail of his robe, filling the entire temple. And then on top of that, he sees legions and legions of angels surrounding him in that small confined space. He sees them all at the same time. And now notice what they're doing. They cover their face and their feet. Here you have the holy and sinless angels of God before his throne. And yet they worship God with such reverence that they hide their face. They don't even look at God eye to eye as the angels. I did not expect that. These angels have nothing to be ashamed of. They have no sin and no blemish, no guilty conscience. They have never sinned in their life, in their existence. Nothing to be ashamed, no regrets in their life. Genuinely no regrets, nothing to be ashamed of. Not an evil thought has ever come into their mind. Nothing wicked, not an evil word has come out of their mouth. Nothing has gone on. And yet they are here covering their face before God because they know that they are not worthy to be in the presence of God. This is something. This is something else. Uh, And and a quick note here. The way these holy angels worship God should put us to shame. How many times have we just walked into church flippantly without any seriousness or reverence, thinking that it's just an empty place, Or how many times have we just strolled in thoughtlessly and gone superficially through the motions in the service? Or how many times have we walked in the church right after, right after sinning, right after a conflict, right after speaking ill of others with unclean lips or doing something that we shouldn't have done this very week? How many times have we just then strolled right into the church with our heads lifted high up and a stiff neck, not ashamed or embarrassed of our sinfulness. And yet you have the dear angels of heaven who have no sin covering their face before God. We, we ought to repent of our thoughtless and irreverent many times worship of God. Okay, back to the sermon. Verse 3 then continues. And one seraphim called out to another. One of the angels calls out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now you should recognize this. You should know it well. Even the children know this. 
This is the song that we sing every Sunday before the Lord's Supper. This is the Sanctus, uh, which means holy. And we are singing the exact words of the angels. This, it came from their mouths first. And we are singing what they sang that day in Isaiah chapter 6 on that very moment. Now, I'm really disappointed because our English translations of the text are inaccurate with these three holies here. Uh, if you look at that, the, the hymn that everybody loves, uh, if you look at the Sanctus in our hymnal even, if you even open up the English Bible, I think the ESV, NIV, and, and others like that, uh, they will translate the words like this. <clears throat> holy, comma, holy, comma, holy, little h, comma. So holy, comma, little h, holy, little h, holy, right? Uh, as if we're just repeating the word holy three times, as if we're just saying it repeatedly for, uh, for the sake of uh, poetry or just to really emphasize how holy God is. Like, well, there are things that are holy, but God is holy, holy, holy. He's super holy. He's the most holy thing. So as if that's what's being communicated. But that is not what the Hebrew is saying. It should be translated like this. Holy one, exclamation point. Holy one, capital exclamation point. Holy one one entire thing, that they are each standing alone separately uh, so that the angels are crying out to the triune God, Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. And the grammar, this is amazing, the grammar here isn't holy, 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 are the Lord's, plural, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord, singular. And so you have the Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, and yet one Lord. And it's not a stretch because I'm not forcing this into the text or taking this and and putting it into the text. I'm drawing it out of the text because look at verse 8 in in, in Isaiah chapter 6. God says later, whom shall I send, singular, who will go for us, plural. He's not talking about the angels. He's talking about himself. He refers to himself in the singular and in the plural. This is the the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is all throughout the Holy Scriptures. If you remember the gospel reading for today, it is there as well about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is the God that the angels are worshiping, the one true God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means we should worship him too. And verses 4 and 5 say this, And the foundations of a threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah sees all of this happen. The foundations of the temple, the massive temple, are shaking at the voice of the angels alone. He sees the sheer power of God. And then when he sees all this, he says, woe is me. It doesn't hit our ears quite the same today. There's a great weight in these words. He's saying, this is what he's saying in today's terms. I am damned. I am going to die and I am going to go to hell forever. That is what he means when he says, woe is me. And why? Isaiah doesn't say, well, look, woe is me because I'm a murderer or I'm an adulterer. I'm a thief. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm going to hell because I'm a man of unclean lips. 
And that seems so little and insignificant for such a punishment. That's only because you and I think very little of sin. We know very little of righteousness. We know very little of what it looks like. However bad you think sin is, it is significantly worse than you imagine. And it goes for every sin. It's not like big sins like murder and theft and adultery are the things that God hates, but then he doesn't care about what comes out of your lips or what your thoughts are or what's going on in your heart. That is equally damning in the sight of God. That is equally damning before the sight of God. This is a huge thing. We, Isaiah knows this. We, like, we think little of cursing or swearing or lying or even using God's name in vain or joking about damnation or things like this. But Isaiah realized how bad this was. Look, I know we don't understand this very well. Um, that's because we live, live in a world that is constantly uh, speaking unclean things. Uh, that has slander and lies and gossip. We hear unholy things. We, we hear people take God's name in vain um, and, and much of the time. And we don't even notice it anymore uh, for the most part. I mean, ju- just the amount of things that we see and hear on the radio or the TV or the things that come through our phone uh, should embarrass us. And that's embarrassing had it been public. Um, we, the thing is, we don't really realize how bad this is or how bad we are until we compare ourselves to what is actually good. We don't understand holiness. Uh, We don't think we're that unholy until we compare ourselves to what is holy. Uh, So, for example, uh, an analogy is like watching a basketball game. You look at the court and you see a bunch of people of of different heights, but they're mostly the same. Uh, They're mostly, you know, see the point guard and the center are kind of the same. I mean, one's a little taller than the other, fine and all that. And it doesn't seem like much until (laughs) the referee, like, hands them the ball. And then you say, these guys are massive. Like, this is ridiculous. This guy's huge. He's seven foot something. You you can't get a scale or a comparison of that until you see the the comparison there. Or it's like wearing uh, shorts and a T-shirt to, like, a wedding. Uh, You feel comfortable but then you show up and then you see everybody else wearing tuxedos and you're like, now you're uncomfortable. You're fine just a second ago. Now that you saw what it looks like to be dressed up, now you feel uncomfortable or your shirt is wrinkled or things. The, the same thing goes for holiness. This is what's happening to Isaiah. He thinks, hey, maybe a few weeks ago, hey, I'm pretty holy. I'm okay. I'm, I worship God. I'm one of his people. I walk into the temple and I see God face to face and his angels And now I'm not even in the same league as these people. Uh, I don't belong here. That's what's going on in in Isaiah's head. I don't belong here. Where do I belong? Down there. I belong in hell. That's for people like me that speak evil things. But these people, they have the holiest things coming out of their lips. And what just came out of mine? He sees his sinfulness in comparison to what is good and holy and pure. And it's not just that he's uncomfortable, but that he knows he is a sinner. He feels his sin. His conscience is burdened and tormented in the presence of God. That's the nature of sin. It humiliates us. And then notice what Isaiah doesn't say, what what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, 
you know, uh, I'm just a man who made a few mistakes here and there. Or he doesn't say, look, I have a few weaknesses uh, and I keep falling back into the same sins over and over. But I'm actually the victim. I'm the one who needs help. He didn't say, look, I've slipped up a few times. I'm not perfect. But you know what? Nobody is. He doesn't say that. He didn't excuse his sin and he didn't defend it. He simply confessed it. He asserted it. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. He doesn't say, I said something unclean. I am this. I am this very thing. And I come from people who are unclean. So there's no hope. And if there are unclean things coming out of his mouth, then what do you think was going on in his heart? What do you think? If, if he is ashamed of what has come out of his mouth, then what do you think he's ashamed of that he hasn't said? The things he has hidden. And so for this reason, Isaiah is doomed. <clears throat> and the text doesn't end here. Uh, and this is the most important part. While all of this is going on, and Isaiah's heart and mind is tormented, and while he's deeply afraid for his eternal life, he's not being modest here. He's genuinely afraid. He says, woe is me. He's fearing his own eternal damnation. At that moment the most beautiful thing happens. Verse six and seven says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And this is beautiful. While Isaiah is afraid of his own sin and guilt, the Lord takes that guilt and sin away. He atones for it. That means he forgives it. The word here in Hebrew is kafar, which means to propitiate. And to propitiate means to cover with blood, to sprinkle with blood. It means that God is going to cover his sin with the blood of a sacrifice. And we know what he's talking, who he's talking about. God himself will cover Isaiah's sin and shame with his own blood, the blood of Christ. And we know this, and we know Isaiah knows this and learns this well, because a few chapters later, he writes this. But he, the Lord, was pierced for our transgressions, He was uh, uh, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Dear saints, this is what you need to know and take with you. That sinners who acknowledge their sin are not abandoned by God. They're not, they're not forsaken by God. First John one says this, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will, what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
When you confess your sin and your guilt to God of how unworthy you are to be in his presence, in his church, how unworthy you are to be a member, how unworthy you are to receive his baptism, how unworthy you are to hear these very words right now, how unworthy you are to receive the Lord's Supper. When you confess this, the Lord will not forsake you or give you what you deserve. He will forgive you and save you. And God will make you worthy to stand in his presence unashamed. He caused this account in Isaiah 6 to be written so that you would learn to despair of all of your own righteousness, that your own goodness and purity would be condemned, and that you would find your only, your only purity and holiness and righteousness in the wounds of Christ, your dear Lord, who spilled his blood for you on the cross, who laid, you, who laid his life down for you, as an atonement for all of your sin. So in Christ, you have nothing to be ashamed of. In Christ, you have nothing to hide because Christ has hidden you in his wounds, in his blood. And you stand joyfully before his presence, not afraid or ashamed, not fearing damnation, but looking forward and rejoicing in your salvation. God be praised that he is here again right now not to condemn you, but to forgive you and give you peace. And soon what is on this altar will be taken and placed on your lips and your guilt and your sin once again will be taken away. God grant us faith to believe this. Amen. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.